Peyton Manning, the uh, stellar quarterback for the Denver Broncos, made over $24,000 last weekend for his favorite charity uh, simply by calling out the word Omaha. Some of you watching football. Okay, the game was Denver versus New England, and uh, many times just before the snap, 31 times to be exact, Peyton Manning would call out Omaha. Now, no one is exactly sure what it means, but we know it's got something to do with confusing the defense. Uh, he had tried it out the previous week against San Diego, Omaha, Omaha, over 40 times, and it had worked. So he announced he was going to use it against New England, and the minute he did that, a group of businessmen from Omaha, Nebraska, let him know that they would give $800 to his favorite charity, and he's got a charity for at-risk youth, his own charity, $800 for every Omaha. So 31 times Omaha, 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 over $24,000 for the charity, and the Omaha businessmen say it probably generated somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million of free advertising for the city of Omaha, Nebraska. Right? Not, not bad. So today, I'm going to ask you to shout about something. I'm going to challenge you to get loud about life. To get loud about life. That's the title of the sermon. Now, the reason I chose that title is not simply because this weekend is the culmination of the Sanctity of Life Week across the nation. Although we are, you know, we would encourage you, as you saw in the first half of the service, to be actively pro-life. We, we do feel like that would be a biblical position. Talk more about that a little, a little bit later. But, but that's not the reason I chose this title. I chose Get Loud About Life because we're starting a 12-week study of 1 John today. And the very first passage we're going to look at, that's the theme of the passage, Get Loud About Life. So I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Okay, find a Bible or turn in your phone or your a pad or whatever. 1 John chapter 1. While you're turning, let me just say the Apostle John wrote five New Testament books. He wrote the Gospel of John, so don't go to the Gospel of John. That's the biography of Jesus, and you'll find that one lumped with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then he wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to look at 1st John for a dozen weeks. And then finally, what, what other book did he write in the New Testament? Finally is a hint, by the way. Revelation. He wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Have you found 1 John? Okay, well, one of the things that I've taught you when you're reading the Bible, when you're uh, on your own, you're reading through Scripture, there are several kinds of observations to make, things to look for. And one out of the four observations to make, you're to look for repeating words or ideas. Okay, if God reiterates something in the same clump of verses, if he says it multiple times, you know he's trying to get your attention. So I want you to quickly scan, if you've got your Bible open, take a look at the opening paragraph of 1 John chapter 1. See if you spot any significant words that get repeated more than once. Okay, the word I want to draw your attention to is the word proclaim. You see that in your Bible? Proclaim. Even if you've got an electronic device, I want you to circle it. Last line of verse 1, John says, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Go to the middle of verse 2. We proclaim to you the eternal life. Look at the beginning of verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. John obviously wants us to proclaim something. There, there's something he wants us to get loud about. What is it? Well, take a look at the, the text again. Do you see the word life? 
that pops up a couple of times in conjunction with proclaim. John has a lot to say about life in these opening verses. But before we look at the details, I just want you to get loud. I want you to get loud about life. On the count of three, all four campuses, I want you to scream life at the top of your lungs. Now, just an aside here, I read this last week that back in October, the fans of the Kansas City Chiefs set a new Guinness World Record for the most noise in a football stadium, 137 decibels. I think we could beat it today. Okay, so all four campuses, life, on the count of three. One, two, three, life! That was pretty good. All right, so we've gotten loud about life. What does it mean? Well, let's take a look at the opening passage of 1 John. I'm going to read it to you. Then I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background. Something else I've taught you about reading the Bible is that whenever you start reading a new book, a book that's new to you, you should always check out that book's what? Starts with the letter C. Context. We did a whole series on context, historical context, back in the fall. You want to find out who wrote this book and who were they writing to and what problems were they, were they addressing at the time? Then you'll understand better what's been written. So let me read it to you and then we'll talk a little bit about its historical context. John says, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, unlike most of the other epistles in the New Testament, there are 21 epistles, that's just a fancy word for letters, okay, 21 epistles out of the 27 books of the New Testament, 21 are epistles, and most of them start right off and tell us who wrote them. Okay, in the opening verse, you'll see the author's name. John doesn't tell us that he wrote this epistle. Okay, so how do we know that John wrote 1 John? Well, there are several reasons, but I'll tell you the most important reason is because there's great similarity between the epistle of 1 John and the gospel of John, which we're pretty certain that, that John wrote. So, one of the similarities is, is the vocabulary. John is a guy who loves stark contrast. He loves to talk about life versus death. He, he loves to talk about light versus darkness, truth versus lies, love versus hate. He's just, uh, John is a black and white sort of guy. So it's pretty obvious when you read these two books that the, the same author is behind each. However, John writes his gospel and the epistle of 1 John to two entirely different audiences. He writes his gospel for the most part for unbelievers, for people who are not yet Christ followers, hoping to convince you to become a Christ follower. And because of that, he talks a lot in his gospel about signs. Signs are miracles that Jesus did that point to the fact that evidences that he is who he claims to be. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. Now, now 1 John, on the other hand, is written for believers, or I should say people who profess to be believers. In John's first epistle, his writing revolves 
around tests, not signs, but tests that reveal whether a person is a genuine Christ follower or not. John wants to know, can you pass these tests? Okay, you claim to be a follower of Jesus. You claim to be a Christian, a believer. Are you truly a believer? Well, here are some tests. He gives us three, and we're going to see these tests pop up over and over and over again over the next dozen weeks in our study of 1 John. The first test is theological. He wants to know, what do you believe about Jesus? Because true Christ followers believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. You believe that? John says the second test is not theological. The second test is moral. What he means by that is, are you walking in obedience to God's commands? Okay, are, are you eager to learn what Jesus has taught and to put it into practice? So you are or you aren't, and that's the proof of the pudding. This is the moral test of whether or not you're a Christ follower. Third test is the social test. Do you love other people? I mean, really love them. Not just with your words. Do you love people in your actions? Do you demonstrate compassion to needy people? Do you demonstrate compassion to gnarly people, people you don't like and who bug you? Because that's a true sign if you pass this test that you're a Christ follower. So these three tests help us determine whether or not we're genuine Christ followers. And if we are, now listen, if we are genuine Christ followers... Go back to the opening paragraph of 1 John 1 that I read to you just a moment ago. True Christ followers, they get loud about life. True Christ followers are proclaimers. Now let's take a look at these opening verses. I want to note three aspects of what it means to be a proclaimer. What does it mean to be one who gets loud about life? If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I'd encourage you to do that. Fill it in, not only so you pay attention, but so that you're listening to God. What does God want to say to you? Okay, number one, I want to talk about the qualifications of a proclaimer. Let me reread verse one to you. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Again, if you haven't figured it out yet, when John talks about life in these opening verses of 1 John, he's talking about Jesus. He doesn't use Jesus' name, but Jesus is the source of life. So to be a proclaimer, to get loud about life, is to get loud about Jesus. Now, there are two qualifications that will equip us to get loud about Jesus. Here's the first one, personal experience. Okay, how do you qualify to be a proclaimer? Personal experience. Before I ask you about your personal experience with Jesus, I want to tell you about John's personal experience with Jesus. M many of you know this already, but John was one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Uh, John at the time was a fisherman, and when Jesus said, follow me, John left his fishing business behind. He left his boat, he left his nets, he began to follow Christ. He was one of the 12 original disciples. Not only was John one of the original 12, he was part of an inner circle in that group. Okay, Peter, James, and John were three guys that Jesus hung out in a special way. He would take them on prayer bivouacs, he would take them on special missions with them. And not only was John part of this inner circle, he, he was also the best bud of Jesus within this inner circle. One of the Gospels speaks of him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he was Jesus' best bud. So John, if you recall the story, at the Last Supper, he was the guy sitting next to Jesus. And when other disciples had questions, they would bump John and say, hey, ask Jesus this one. 
You know, John was the one who at the foot of Jesus' cross, he stood there next to Jesus' mother Mary, and Jesus looked down in pain and agony from the cross and entrusted his mother to John's care. And from that day forward, the gospel says, John took care of Mary. Mary went to live with John and his family. So again, we're talking best buds, personal, firsthand, eyewitness experience of Jesus. John underscores that point in the first verse with the verbs that he uses. Look, look at verse 1 again. Circle the words heard, seen, and touched. Okay, you're, we're talking about three out of the five senses right there. Heard, seen, touched. John had a sensory experience of Jesus. He had heard Jesus speak on many occasions. He'd seen Jesus do miracles. In fact, the, the word seen or looked at appears four times in the opening verses here. I've seen him, I've seen him, I've seen him, I've seen him. And, and then thirdly, touched. You know, I, I, I have in mind that John was, was thinking about Jesus' post-resurrection appearance at this point. You, you remember how Jesus appeared momentarily to his disciples after his resurrection, but Thomas wasn't with him at the time? So they ran back and they reported to Thomas, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's back from the dead. And remember Thomas's retort? He said, I'll never believe it. I will never believe it until I could put my finger in the nail hole in his hands, till I could thrust my hand where, where the sword cut him open on the cross. I'm not going to believe it. And he no sooner finishes saying those words than who pops into the room right through the locked door? Jesus shows up. And Thomas is looking for a hole to crawl into. And Jesus says to his disciples, not just Thomas, but according to Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus looks at all his buds and says, you guys want to touch me? Go ahead. And you want to see that I'm not a ghost? Touch me. Go ahead. So John had personal experience with Jesus. That's what qualified him to be a proclaimer. Now, just a side note here. This is also what qualified John to write a trustworthy biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John. And I, I just want to warn you, you're going to hear all sorts of silly stuff said about other Gospels that could have, should have been included in the New Testament. You know, some years ago now, Dan Brown wrote his famous book, The Da Vinci Code, that was made into the Tom Hanks movie. And in that book, he says, boy, when the New Testament was coming together, there were actually like 80 Gospels, biographies of Jesus that were floating around. And the reason that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John made it into the New Testament and not the others is, is because they chose to make Jesus into a larger-than-life character, supernatural, mythological. Well, if you know anything about the history of the, you know, the Gospels, the scholars will tell you there weren't, there weren't 80 biographies floating around there were maybe 17 18 of them or so and the reason the others weren't included they were typically written 150 to 300 years after Christ Matthew Mark Luke John they are eyewitness accounts again let me say John's gospel was written by Jesus best bud it was written from personal experience you know, the qualification of a proclaimer personal experience is still necessary for those who want to be proclaimers today. You know, although not quite in the same way. We don't get to hear and see and touch Jesus physically like John did. But friends, let me tell you, when you surrender your life to Christ, okay, if you've never done this, when you come to the place of giving your life to Christ, Christ comes to live by His Spirit on the inside. And you begin a personal journey 
with Jesus. You begin a personal experience with Christ. He begins to shape your life. Uh, daily, you're conversing with him. He's speaking to you through his word. You're speaking back to him in prayer. You're beginning to participate in building his kingdom. Now, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, or maybe you think, possibly I've made this faith decision, but there's no evidence of a daily walk with him, or the walk has slipped in some way, then you're not qualified to be a proclaimer because, quite frankly, you don't have anything to proclaim. You live in a world where people desperately need the life that Jesus can give, but you've got nothing to say because you aren't experiencing that life yourself. You know, what, what about you? Can you say, I can proclaim life in, in Jesus because I'm experiencing that life? Or when you look in the mirror, do you say, you know, I, I don't know anything about that life that Jim's talking about here. So you can't be a proclaimer unless you've got the personal experience. I want to tell you the good news is you can turn that around today. I mean, before you leave our four campuses, you could surrender your life to Christ. I'm always telling people the best way to do that is with somebody else. So you kind of drive a stake in the ground. So if we can help you at one of our welcome centers after the service with one of our prayer team members, if you say, I want to experience the life that Christ gives so I can proclaim that life, I could share that life with others, we would ha be happy to pray you across that line. Or if you say, you know, I think I made that decision, but I've drifted from it, and there's no personal walk on a daily basis with Jesus, you can start that. You could jumpstart it today. Let us help you get started. Second qualification of a proclaimer. First, you need the personal experience. Secondly, you need a commission. You need a commission from Christ. The, the word proclaim, the verb itself, according to Bible scholars, comes with the weight of authority. See, a proclaimer is not merely somebody with a few personal anecdotes to tell. A proclaimer is a herald who's been sent by the king with an urgent message. Big difference. John saw himself as someone who'd been commissioned by King Jesus to deliver a life-giving message to others. John had stood on the Mount of Olives several weeks after Jesus' resurrection, just before Jesus ascends back to earth. He'd been there when, when Christ had looked into the eyes of his close followers, and he had given them a commission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, proclaim means you got to have authority, okay? Jesus says he's got the authority. He's going to give it to his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. King Jesus commissions his followers to make disciples of all people. Now, how do we do that? How do you do that? How do I do that? Well, we do it by proclaiming the truth about Jesus and the life that he gives and then inviting people to respond by surrendering their lives to Christ. So if you're a Christ follower here today, you have been commissioned by your king to be a proclaimer. Let me say that again to you folks in Bartlett, in Blackberry Creek, in DeKalb, in St. Charles. If you are a Christ follower, you have been commissioned by your king to be a proclaimer. Maybe an analogy here would help, okay? So let's say for a moment, imagine that you're a senior in high school 
And the principal of your school has just asked you to be the one who gives the student address at the graduation in May. Or, or let's say that you're a salesperson for a large company and the CEO of that company has recently tapped you to make the big presentation to a potential uh, new customer. Or let's say a friend of yours has just passed away and the family has come to you and, and said, we want you to deliver the eulogy at the funeral. See, you've been commissioned in each of these instances. What are the chances that you're going to show up with nothing to say? No way. What are the chances that you, you might choose you know, not to show up at all? No way. You, you've been commissioned. Friend, if you're a Christ follower, you've been commissioned by King Jesus to proclaim him and the life that he gives. If I, if I could get everyone here to read one book in this next year on how to share Christ with others, it would be Ron Hutchcraft's book, A Life That Matters. And by the way, I did such a good job of promoting this in the last two services that we sold the book out. So, but we're keeping a list at the Resource Center. Some of the other campuses besides St. Charles, you may still have a copy. So check it out after the service. A Life That Matters. If you want a copy, just you know, sign up and we'll have it for you by next week. But I, I like the book because Ron Hutchcraft loves to share Christ himself. And so he tells inspiring stories that just get me excited about doing that. And then he's got uh, wonderful tips on how to do a better job. And one of the little amusing analogies that he uses, he says, it's like show and tell in grade school. Remember that? Ron says, my, my teacher, Ms. Grimley, you know, she told us all to bring something from home that we thought would be of interest to the rest of the class. But we could not just show it. You know, you could not just hold up your hamster with a silly look on your face. You had to tell about it. Ms. Grimley said, you got to tell. So you'd have to say, you know, this is my pet hamster. You know, his name is Sniffles. He lives in a cage with sawdust on the bottom. He's got bad breath. You know, what, what, you'd have to tell because Ms. Grimley had commissioned you. King Jesus requires us to tell about the life he offers. You can't say, well, I just let people see it in my life. This is not show and show. This is show and tell. you got to be able to tell about the life that he offers. We've been commissioned to be proclaimers. Silence isn't an option. If we claim to be Christ followers, but, but we're not proclaiming, or it's been a long time since we've had a God conversation with somebody, or the subject of Jesus has come up, and by the way, let me say as an aside, this happens to me periodically. I note this, you know, ebb and flow in my life. And there are times when I say, wow, it's been a while since I've had a personal discussion with somebody at the health club or a neighbor just talking about Jesus. When I note that, what do I do? You know, I tell Jesus, King Jesus, I'm sorry that I've not been a very good ambassador of his. I've not been a proclaimer and I want it to change. And I ask him to give me courage and to open my mouth and to open doors of opportunity. And I read books like A Life That Matters because it jacks me up. And so that may, might be the place where you want to start. You know, if you're, you're at that place where you're not a proclaimer, which King Jesus has commissioned you to do, you might want to pick up a copy of A Life That Matters or go through it in a community group, 300 community groups out there. Maybe that's the book, the next curriculum you should choose. Or a simple way to start two weeks from now is our next WOW weekend. Yeah, invite somebody. Even if they know nothing about the NBA or who AC Green is or what, it's going to be an exciting weekend. Have them come with you. Qualifications for being a proclaimer. Two of them. Got to have personal experience. 
got to know that you've been commissioned to do this. Number two, let's talk about the message of a proclaimer. I want you to go back to 1 John chapter 1, drop down to verse 2. Before I, I reread verse 2, I want you to know just the last phrase of verse 1, where John says he's been commissioned to proclaim the word of life. You see that? The word of life. Well, verse 2 explains what John means by the word of life. Or I should say, who John means by the word of life. Verse 2, the life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now again, it seems obvious that when John refers to life in these opening verses, he's referring to Jesus, even though he doesn't use Jesus' name. Here in verse 2, he talks about a time when this life appeared. In fact, he says it twice. There are two life appears in this verse. We're referring, no doubt, to the appearing of Jesus upon earth 2,000 years ago. Now, let me ask, where was Jesus prior to coming to earth in Bethlehem? Well, John tells us in the middle of verse 2. He says he was with the Father, eternally preexistent. See, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus has always existed. Go back to the opening line of verse 1 where John says that Jesus was from the beginning. You see that? Now, this is why John uses life as a nickname for Jesus. Jesus has always been alive. In fact, Jesus is the source of life. Theologians speak of Jesus as the only independent being in the universe, as a son of God, independent. What do they mean, independent? They mean he doesn't depend on anybody or anything for his life. He is life in himself. See, by way of contrast, you and I are dependent beings. We don't have life in and of ourselves. We depend upon something outside of ourselves for life. Where do we get our life? Who's the source of our life? It's Jesus. Jesus is Mr. Life. And John says, this is the message we're, we're to proclaim to others. We're to tell this to our schoolmates. We're to tell it to people we work with. If you want life, you've got to have Jesus. You know, if you want life, Jesus can give you life. Now, what, what kind of life is John talking about? Well, there are three kinds of life that John describes in both the gospel and in 1 John, all of which come from Jesus. You know, the first kind of life is, you know, is physical life. Je Jesus is the creator of every living thing. Jesus is the one who gives life to everything that's living. Okay, John says this about Jesus in that regard in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Who gave you life? Okay, or to use the poetic lingo of Psalm 139 that we recited in the worship part of our service today, who knit you together in your mother's womb? I'll ask it again, and I'll even let you answer, okay? Who gave you life? Jesus. Jesus is the one who knits babies together in their mother's womb, gives them life in the mother's womb, which is why nobody, listen, nobody has the right to take life from those unborn babies because Jesus gives life. Now, I know for, for some of you, who've been taught something different, and, and this may rankle you, but hang in there with me, would you? Okay, this is Sanctity of, of Life Week. Uh, one of my news magazines carried an interview with a guy named Ryan Bomberger. 
Ryan was conceived by rape. And, and because of his background, he is a pro-life activist. He started an organization called Radiance Foundation. One of the things that he's sick and tired of is politicians who try to justify allowing abortion on the basis of rape. He says, first of all, do you know that rape represents less than 1% of abortion cases? And he says, besides that, something much more important, everywhere I travel across the country and talk to people who, like me, have been conceived by rape, every single one of them is really, really, really happy that their mother chose not to end their life. Seems so obvious, doesn't it? That even in the case of a horrible crime like rape, and it's a horrible crime, it doesn't justify the taking of life. Jesus is the creator of that life. That's why we're unabashedly pro-life at Christ Community Church. And, and again, I want you to understand our, our position here, okay? It's not just that we're against abortion. All right, we are against abortion. We believe that's where being pro-life starts. So we encourage people to vote against abortion, to counsel women against abortion. Talk to a, a dad after our last service. He said, when my daughter became pregnant three years ago, I, you know, I was ready to encourage her. Yeah, you're not ready for that baby. And he said, now I look at my grandson, three years old, and I think to myself, how could I ever have thought of saying that to my daughter? So we, we counsel women against it. We encourage you to be part of a prayer vigil at an abortion clinic praying against it. But, but it's more than being against something. It's about being forced. It's about being for life. It's about being for the supporting of unwed mothers through serving at crisis pregnancy centers, which you have an opportunity to do at Christ's community. You know, it's, it's about being for adoption and foster care for unwanted kids. You know, it, it, it's, it's about being for befriending at-risk children, which we encourage you to do through Kids Hope Ministry here. And by the way, if you've got one hour a week, just one hour a week to spend with an at-risk kid, we'd love to sign you up for Kids Hope. It's about being for offering forgiveness, offering restoration to women and to the men who've had a hand in their abortions. You know, I want you to know you can experience it. You don't need to bury this. You don't need to walk around in, in shame. You could be forgiven. You could start fresh. It's what God offers, what we offer. That's what I mean when we say uh, we're pro-life here. Because Jesus is the author. He's the source of physical life. Secondly, Jesus is the source of spiritual life. Jesus is the source of spiritual life. The Bible tells us that our sins have left us spiritually dead. We're separated from God, the source of life. And the reason that Jesus died, now listen, the reason that Jesus died on the cross was to take the death that we deserve on himself. And now he offers us spiritual life. He offers us a restored relationship with God. The Apostle John has a lot to say in his writings about spiritual life. You know, Jesus' famous quote recorded in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about spiritual life. He'll connect you with God. This is the life that Jesus offers. And finally, Jesus is the source of eternal life. You know, on one occasion, Jesus stood outside the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, poised to do his most amazing miracle. But just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he announced, 
This is in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus announced, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is eternal life. And I, I dropped by the home of a young mom from our church who's dying of cancer this past week. It's just a, a terribly grievous situation. But Christ followers have hope in the midst of those kinds of situations. And I, I was able to share with the family from God's word what God has in store for this wife, this mom. He has in store life. I met with them on Wednesday night, and on Thursday she passed away. But I know where she is, because she put her hope and trust in Christ. I know that she's in the presence of Jesus, fully alive. And I love the words of D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from the 19th century. He, he said, because he was always in the press, he said, one, one day you're going to read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe it. <laughs> I will never be more fully alive than at that moment. You, know, you see why it's so important to proclaim Jesus to others? See why it's so important to get loud about life? See, everybody experiences physical life that Jesus gives. If your heart's beating today, if you're drawing breaths, it's because Jesus has given you physical life. But only those who surrender their lives to Christ experience the spiritual and eternal life that Jesus gives. This is why John wrote both his gospel and his first epistle. At the end of his gospel, he concludes with these words. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this book, John says. At the end of 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, the epistle, he says, this is my testimony. God's given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the message of every Christ follower. This is your message. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's your message for your family. It's your message for your classmates, your co-workers, your neighbors. And if you're thinking, well, you know, John, he's very articulate in explaining how to get this life, but I could never explain that to someone. You know, this is the reason we put together those little God's good news booklets. Because we know not everybody is articulate at saying this is how you get life in Jesus. But we know you could take one of those booklets that's a capsule summary of what the Bible teaches about how to get life in Jesus. And you could say to someone, you know, the information in this booklet has changed my life. In fact, it's given me life. Can I take 10 minutes and just walk through it with you? And you could turn it page by page and lead them to life in Christ. You know, we had a diminishing number of these booklets because we go through these booklets, you know, like wildfire. So we didn't, we didn't have as many as we thought we did on hand today, but if there are any left, they're on the tables as you leave each of the auditoriums at the four campuses. I would encourage you, if you don't have one of those, pick one up so you got something to share with somebody else. You know, it, do, it doesn't mean just because you have one in your, in your wallet or your purse or the glove compartment of your car that you'll use it, but I guarantee if you don't have one, you won't use it. Think about that. <laughs> if you don't have one, you won't use it. So pick one. This is the message that we proclaim, that life is to be found in Christ. Third and finally, the objectives of a proclaimer. See, John proclaimed life in Jesus to other people, and when he did, what did he hope would happen? 
I mean, there's, there's the obvious, right? There's the, the, the big goal of connecting people with Jesus as the source of life. But what about other objectives? In fact, let me ask you the question, if you're a Christ follower, what might happen if you got loud about life? What might happen if you became a proclaimer of Christ? You know, besides the possibility that you'll end up connecting someone to Jesus, what else? What objectives do we hope to achieve? You say, what does this matter? Well, it's, it's highly motivational. See, if you anticipate achieving something by being a proclaimer, there's a better chance you're going to go out and proclaim. So what is it you hope to achieve? Go back to 1 John 1 with me, because I want you to see two of John's objectives as a proclaimer. I'm going to call the first one expanding fellowship. And you'll see it in verse 3. It comes right out of the verse. He says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Go back to the first part of the verse. Why does John proclaim Christ to others? Look at the phrase, so that. He's going to tell us. This is the reason why. So that you also may have fellowship with us. See, it's not just we're getting people connected to Jesus. We're getting people connected to us. John says that's one of the reasons I share Christ is because I want to connect people with the community of Christ followers. I, I was talking with a buddy of mine this past week, and in the course of our conversation, I invited him to church sometime with me, and his answer in the course of our conversation was, you know, I don't think you need to be part of a church to be a good Christian. How many of you have ever heard someone say something like that? Like everybody, right? If I had a buck for everybody who said that to me, I'd be a wealthy man right now. Now, unfortunately, what, what my friend doesn't understand is that the Bible always talks about Christ following in corporate terms. It's a team sport. You, you think of all the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what it means to be a Christ follower, the word pictures. For example, the Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a soldier in Jesus' army. Okay, to be a soldier is to be part of an army. You, you don't say, well, I don't think you need to be part of an army to be a soldier. Yeah, you don't want to be a soldier out there on your own, right? See, another metaphor that the Bible uses, it says if you're a Christ follower, then you're an eye or you're an ear or you're a mouth in Jesus' body. See, you don't want body parts just floating around in air and not attached to anything, do you? See, you want them to be part of a body. It's kind of spooky if they're not, all right? It's another metaphor that the Bible uses. If you're a Christ follower, you're a living stone in Jesus' temple. Or another one, if you're a Christ follower, you're a brother, you're a sister in Jesus' family. See, these are all team word pictures. And it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing to be part of Jesus' team, even if the people to whom we proclaim Christ don't get it initially. You know, they might not be interested in church. They might not be interested in being part of this expanding fellowship that John talks about here. But those of us who've discovered Christian community, we know the value of this fellowship. We know what it's like now to be part of a group where if we're going through a tough time, they surround us with their prayers. They pick up our spirits. 
We know what it's like to gather in a community group and study God's book together and draw application for our lives and put it into practice. We know the camaraderie of those community groups. We know what it's like to serve side by side, to be part of a ministry. We're doing something purposeful, and we're doing it with other people. We know what it's like to gather once a week in these worship settings, and hundreds of people with arms lifted up and voices lifted up are praising God. It's energizing. It's inspirational. In fact, I hope, I hope you're not going to use the cold as a, an excuse to stay away tonight. You're not going to do that, will you? You're going to show up for Ignite 6 to 7.30 at each of our campuses, a time of worship, a time of prayer, because it's energizing. There's value in this experience of Christian community. And so even if people don't get it, they don't see the need for expanding fellowship. We know it's for their sake. I mean, did, did you know that we're, we're a church of 20,000 people? Now, 15,000 aren't attending yet. <laughs> but they could be. They could be if we were proclaimers. In, in fact, let me give you a, a bit of interesting data. A guy named Dr. Tom Rayner did a national survey of people who don't go to church. And he published the results of that survey in a book called 10 Surprises About the Unchurched. And here's the biggest surprise he came away with. He said, did you know that 96% of the people who don't go to church say that they're somewhat likely to go to church if they're personally invited by somebody? 96%. He said, now here's the bad news. I did a survey among churched people. Did you know that less than 2% of church people invite an unchurched person to church with them at least once a year? 96% say they'd be somewhat likely to consider it and, and go with you. Two weeks from now, A.C. Green, WOW Weekend. Even if people could care less about the NBA, maybe they got a brother who likes basketball or a husband who likes basketball or a son who likes somebody who likes basketball. And even if they know nothing about basketball, the weekend itself, if you've ever been at a WOW Weekend, is so intriguing and fun, energizing. They'll come if you'll invite them. They won't come if you don't. Now, here's John's second objective. You know, the first objective, he just wants to see people added to the community for their sake. Here's the second objective in being a proclaimer, and I'm going to call it increasing joy. You're going to love this one. Look, look at the closing verse. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. He said, why am I writing about life in Christ why am I a tireless proclaimer of Jesus and the life that he gives? It's to make my joy complete. You know, I wish more of us understood where the greatest joy in following Christ comes from. Because I, I want to tell you, it, it doesn't come from serving in some ministry. There's joy in that, but that's not where the greatest joy comes from. The, the greatest joy does not come from putting a generous gift in the offering bag, though, though there's joy in that, as some of you will experience in just a few moments here when we take our offering. The, the, the greatest joy doesn't come from gaining more Bible knowledge, doesn't come from personal character transformation, which is going to take shape in you as you follow Jesus, doesn't come from getting more answers to your prayers. There's joy in all of those things, but the greatest joy in the Christian life is connecting people to Jesus, the source of life. There is no greater joy. In fact, one of the things I've discovered is that I get a jolt of joy when I proclaimed Christ, even if there's no response on the person's part. You know, I had a friend, uh, 
that I went out to dinner with last Friday night. As I tell you this concluding story, by the way, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on our platforms. And in just a moment, we're going, to, we're going to sing a song of worship. We're going to go out on a song, go out giving our gifts to the Lord. But I want to tell you one closing story here and then wrap things up. I'm out to eat with a friend of mine. He introduces me to a new barbecue place. It was right under my nose in our town, brand new though, so I hadn't experienced it. I had the most amazing Texas brisket that had been slow cooked for 14 hours. You hear what I'm saying? Okay, I've said this for three services now and people have stood in line to ask me where the restaurant is. Three guys, actually, I'm not making this up, at last night's service from Texas saying, tell us where it is, Texas brisket. The most amazing thing was not the meal and it was pretty darn good. The most amazing thing was that the conversation slowly meandered around to spiritual things and I got to talk about Jesus. And and I'm not telling you this because my friend expressed an interest in coming to Christ's community church. He didn't. Or an interest in joining my men's group. He didn't. Or an interest in surrendering his life to Christ. He's not there yet, told me. Maybe someday, he said. But even though I didn't get the response I would have loved to have gotten, I was pumped for like two days after that. Why? Because that's what happens to every Christ follower who has an opportunity to talk about Jesus. There's just nothing more exciting. And and it is an over-the-top joy if you do see people respond. If you do see somebody you've talked to about Christ and the life he gives, surrendered to Christ, especially if that person goes public. Ever been to one of our baptism celebrations? You know, and see person after person get dunked saying, I'm choosing to follow Christ. Imagine what it would be like to see somebody you know, somebody you've shared Christ with up there getting dunked as a follower of Jesus. No greater joy. Just an aside, our next baptism is March 15 and 16. Okay, about six, seven weeks away. Now, we baptized over 300 people at Christ's community last year. But at our last baptism, I noticed something. Just want to chide you a bit on this one, all right? I noticed that a lot of people who got baptized were young people and women. And I want to say, guys, man up. Okay? Men, consider this my personal challenge to you, mano a mano here, all right? If you've trusted Jesus in the last year, you've surrendered to Christ in the last year, three years, five years, and you've never gone public, you're letting the ladies and the children go public, and you're sitting there in the seat, come on. Okay, I want to see you up here March 15 or 16 one of our, at one of our other campuses possibly getting baptized. So there's nothing like that celebration. If you could see someone get baptized whom you shared Christ with, it's over-the-top joy. And there's only one thing that'll beat it. And that is one day stepping into God's new heaven, new earth, looking around and seeing some people who are there because you invited them. You invited them to trust Christ. You shared the little God's good news booklet with them. You know, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. He was writing to a group of people in the town of Thessalonica whom he had personally introduced to Christ. And he says to them, what is our hope? What is our joy? What's our joy? Or the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul says there is no bigger joy in this life and the life to come than connecting somebody with Jesus, who is life, 
who is, if you've never had an opportunity to do it, it's time to get loud about life. It's time to become a proclaimer of Christ.